Well, one thing you may not have noticed about me is that on the sort of sliding scale of organization and chaos, I tend to be on the extreme end of one side. And I'll let you guess which side you think that is. Well, one day when I was in my mid-twenties, I was sitting in a mission meeting at St. Andrews in downtown Fort Worth, and I was perfectly contented with myself and very attentive to the meeting. My notepad was at perfect right angles to the corners and the lines of the table. Am I the only one? Okay, just making sure. My black pen, my red pen, and my highlighter, they were lined up just so in perfect alignment next to one another so that I could access any one of them in a moment's notice. And there in the chair to my right sat the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. And in order to protect her anonymity for this story, we'll just give her the pseudonym Margie Colbert. How did I do so far? You know what they say about paybacks. I did read this to her before I preached it. And honestly, you simply won't believe what happened next. There I am, minding my own business. And there are my pens and my paper standing at attention, ready to serve. When suddenly this, this very female hand slips across the table. It thumps my pens into a disordered pile of paper, <laughs> and it knocks my notebook clean out of alignment. Can you believe the nerve of that woman? <laughs> now I ask you, how could I be expected to pay attention to the meeting? How could I possibly focus on me, myself, and I? When there is this woman sitting next to me invading my perfectly organized space, ruining my perfectly ordered world, messing with the picture of perfection that I had created for myself, all because she was trying to show me, all because she was trying to communicate to me, get this, that she loved me. Imagine that. And I had a choice, didn't I? I could have blinded myself to her courtship gestures, I could have resisted, I could have rejected, I could have said no. And if you think I'm a pistol now, can you imagine me without Margie? Don't think too long about that. <laughs> well, in today's gospel reading, we encounter a man who was born blind. And without being physically blind ourselves, it's difficult to understand the challenges and the burdens that a blind person may face. And whatever challenges and stigmas we may consider when we contemplate physical blindness in today's world, in the ancient world, we have to add an additional stigma. The stigma of being spiritually cursed and marginalized as a result. Or at least that was the common theological thought of the day in Israel, for when Jesus comes upon the man born blind, we find his disciples asking this question, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, 
the man born blind, certainly knows his own condition, right? His parents know his condition. The whole community knows his condition. For they had all seen him sitting at the side of the road begging. Now let's just make sure we get this. Imagine this man sitting there day after day, month after month, year after year. There he is, perhaps at the intersection of Camp Bowie and Bryant Irvin. Right? Now what do you suppose this man born blind thought about God? Or that he thought that God thought about him? Was he cursed? Was God possibly punishing him? Was there perhaps some sin that his parents had committed? Was there perhaps some sin that he hadn't yet thought of as he sat there day after day after day, blind and begging? And just to add insult to injury, there are at least three groups of people talking about him as if he's not sitting right there, right? I mean, he's blind, not deaf, as if that really mattered anyway, right? And I'm going to save the activity of Jesus to the end. Because the point of the narrative is this. The physical healing that Jesus performs on the blind man is meant to point us to a deeper problem. The problem of spiritual blindness. So I want to talk first about spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness that Jesus exposes. And there are four types that are revealed in the text. First, there's the spiritual blindness of the crowd. Those who saw him blind and begging day after day. And, and the text tells us a couple of things about the crowd. One thing we see about the crowd is this. When they see the man born blind get healed, they become divided over whether or not he actually is healed. Imagine that. Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. And yet, in the midst of them, there he is jumping up and down. Hey, <laughs> I was blind. And, and now I see, it, it, I'm the man, right? It's not just a phrase in golf tournaments. <laughs> There's a guy who was actually blind, and now he can see. But the second thing we see about the crowd, even more astonishing than the first thing we observe, is that rather than go to Jesus, they take him to the Pharisees. Where is the man who healed you, they ask him. I don't know, the man replies. And then they drag him before the Pharisees, as if the Pharisees can do something about it. And what lesson might we take from this? Oh God, save us from spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness of following the crowd. Help us to stand out from the crowd when you come into the midst of us. Help us to stay restless until we find our rest in you. Second, Jesus exposes the spiritual blindness in his own disciples. The disciples, of course, had the benefit of following Jesus for some time. Yet when they encountered the man born blind, rather than getting in the game, they want to make sure they perform a proper theological diagnosis on the guy first, right? Because when they see him, they say, Who sinned? This guy or his parents that he finds himself in this condition. And really, friends, I mean, really... Who cares? Right? Who cares? This blind man is not some theological lab rat. 
He's a human being made in the image of God. And I'm all about doing theology well. You know that. But the point of doing theology well is that we actually engage the world around us with the mission of the good news of the gospel. As the scriptures tell us, when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. Therefore, when we see someone who is suffering, let's get in the game. Take action. Do something about it. The command is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. The command is not that we sit on the sidelines and make sure we have everything figured out before we act. Lord, save us from the spiritual blindness. The spiritual blindness of studying your word without applying what we learn to our lives. And help us to help those we see in need. Third, Jesus exposes the spiritual blindness of the man's parents, who expose a blindness that is driven by fear. A blindness that makes us fear man more than we fear God. When the Pharisees uh, asked the blind man's parents how it is that this man was healed, rather than crying out, Jesus did it, Jesus did it, instead the parents punt. They say to the Pharisees, well, Ask him. He's of age. And we know that they did that, as the text tells us, because they were afraid. The text specifically says this. They were afraid that the Pharisees would kick them out of the synagogue. Lord, save us from the spiritual blindness called fear. For whether or not we are parents of children, you have spoken plainly to us all when you say, If you deny me before men... I will deny you before the Father. Fourth, Jesus exposes the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as we know, are among the religious leaders of the day. And in this instance, they are both right and they are deadly wrong. They're right, of course, to ask questions. We are right to want to make sure that Jesus is the Messiah. We're right to make sure that we're following the right God because as St. Paul tells us, if Jesus is not God, then we are fools to be pitied above all men and we're found to be misrepresenting him. But unfortunately, the Pharisees are also dead wrong. Because their questions are not meant to persuade, their questions are meant to dissuade. To dissuade the people from following Jesus. They've already made up in their minds, even before they've asked the questions, what the conclusions are. They had resolved to put anyone out of the synagogue. Anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, anyone who dared to call him Lord. Lord, save your church from spiritual blindness. Save your leaders from pride of position, your bishops, your priests, your deacons. Keep us from turning your people away from Jesus especially when he's so obviously working in our midst and so plainly manifesting his glory right before our very eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, everything that I've just said, every spiritual blindness that I've just exposed before us is meant to be said in love and in grace and in mercy because the fact of the matter is this. We're all subject to spiritual blindness. This is the result of the fall. 
This, this is why we're blinded in areas of our life. This is why it's difficult for us to see Jesus. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we all see through a dimly lit glass. Everyone else. This is the consequence of sin. But the good news, the good news of God in Christ Jesus is that this is not how God sees us. This is the good news of the gospel. This is not how God sees us. God does not see us as we are prone to see Him. And so how is it that God sees us? And how is it that we can know that we rightly see Him? And how do we know that God is working for us? The answer is the action and activity of Jesus Christ. So now let us finally turn and look at Jesus. Notice what he does. Jesus looks at the man born blind. The first thing he does that nobody else does is he notices the man. And then immediately after he notices the man, he looks at the ground. And he sees the dirt. And do you know what that imagines for us? Creation. Creation. God forming us out of the dust of the earth. Adam. When Jesus looks at us, he sees creation. The next thing that Jesus does after he looks at the ground is that he, he spits on it. Not in disgust, mind you, but in the image that the scriptures uphold for us of, of the potter and the clay, right? Taking the, the hardened crustedness of our sin in creation because of the fall and divinely acting upon it. And he takes the dirt and he turns it into clay and he puts it on the man's eyes. But he doesn't stop there. The next thing he does is that he sends the blind man. He sends him to the pool called Siloam, which means sent. Symbolic of the waters of baptism, are it not? For when we are molded and shaped by Jesus, in baptism we are washed by Jesus. And sent on mission to tell the good news of God in Christ Jesus. How he has touched us how He has washed us, and how He has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. And finally, communion. Notice the end of the story. The blind man doesn't stop when he's here. He could have stopped and said it was the magical properties of the water in Siloam, right? He could have stopped there. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus comes and he finds him and he searches until he finds him and the man says, Lord, tell me who this son of man is so that I may believe. And Jesus says, now you've seen him. Now you've seen him. And the one speaking to you right now is him. How do we know that we know that we know that we know that we found Jesus? The signs of God in Christ Jesus are simple. 
And he means for it to be that way because he knows our spiritual blindness. And Jesus can see plainly. Four words I want to leave us with this morning. When we're struggling with spiritual blindness, when we're wondering whether or not we're seeing God rightly, when we're wondering if He's for us and not against us, when we're confused, when we're lost, when we're broken, four words. Creation. Cross. Commission. Communion. Creation. Cross. Commission. Communion. Creation. Cross. Commission and communion. This is how God sees the world. This is how God sees you. This is how God sees me. Creation, cross, commission, and communion. I could have missed the blessing that day in that mission meeting. Margie's love came calling for me, and I could have blinded myself to it. When she messed with my pens and my paper, I could have put everything right back in order, just the way I had it. But look at what I would have lost if I had done that. And the point, dear friends, is this. We can't do anything about being physically blind. But with spiritual blindness, there is always, always, always a choice. So let me ask a question. Seriously, is, is Jesus trying to mess with your world right now? If, if things are a little bit out of order, maybe it's for a reason. Maybe he's pushing the pens and the pencils and the paper around in our world because he's trying to get our attention to the blessings that he wants to open up for us in our lives. Said another way, is Jesus possibly messing with the perfect world that you've created, that I've created for ourselves? It's all fine and good when he's out there, isn't it? But let's not miss the point of, of why he's here. If Jesus is messing with the pens and the pencils and the papers in our lives, he's only doing it through one person because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And how will you and I know his love? He's made it very simple in hopes that we will all see. And my prayer, my friends, is that this would be the rhythm of our lives. Creation, cross. Commission, communion. Creation, cross. Commission, communion. Creation, cross. Commission, communion. When you walk out of this room and say, Creation, cross, commission, communion. That's how you'll know when you see Jesus. Most people.